Chapter 7, Parts 4, 5, and 6 of War in the Air. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Fred DiBerardinus. War in the Air by H. G. Wells. Chapter 7, Parts 4, 5, and 6. Part 4. By means of a folding chair, which was still in its place behind the door, they got to the window and looked out in turn and contemplated a sparsely wooded country below, with no railways nor roads, and only occasional signs of habitation. Then a bugle sounded, and Kurt interpreted it as a summons to food. They got through the door and clambered with some difficulty up the nearly vertical passage, holding on desperately with toes and fingertips to the ventilating perforations in its floor. The mess stewards had found their fireless heating arrangements intact, and there was hot cocoa for the officers and hot soup for the men. Bert's sense of the queerness of this experience was so keen that it blotted out any fear he might have felt. Indeed, he was far more interested now than afraid. He seemed to have touched down to the bottom of fear and abandonment overnight. He was growing accustomed to the idea that he would probably be killed presently, that this strange voyage in the air was in all probability his death journey. No human being can keep permanently afraid. Fear goes at last to the back of one's mind, accepted and shelved and done with. He squatted over his soup, sopping it up with his bread, and contemplated his comrades. They were all rather yellow and dirty, with four-day beards, and they grouped themselves in the tired, unpremeditated manner of men on a wreck. They talked little. The situation perplexed them beyond any suggestion of ideas. Three had been hurt in the pitching up of the ship during the fight, and one had a bandaged bullet wound. It was incredible that this little band of men had committed murder and massacre on a scale beyond precedent. None of them who squatted on the sloping gas-padded partition, soup-mug in hand, seemed really guilty of anything of the sort, seemed really capable of hurting a dog wantonly. They were all so manifestly built for homely chalets on the solid earth, and carefully tilled fields, and blonde wives and cheery merrymaking. The red-faced, sturdy man with light eyelashes, who had brought the first news of the air battle to the men's mess, had finished his soup, and with an expression of maternal solicitude was readjusting the bandages of a youngster whose arm had been sprained. Bert was crumbling the last of his bread into the last of his soup, eking it out as long as possible, when suddenly he became aware that everyone was looking at a pair of feet that were dangling across the downturned open doorway. Kurt appeared and squatted across the hinge. In some mysterious way he had shaved his face and smoothed down his light golden hair. He looked extraordinarily cherubic. "'Der Prince,' he said." A second pair of boots followed, making wide and magnificent gestures in their attempts to feel the door-frame. Kurt guided them to a foothold, and the prince, shaved and brushed and beeswaxed and clean and big and terrible, slid down into position astride of the door. All the men and Bert also stood up and saluted. The prince surveyed them with the gesture of a man who sight a steed. The head of the capitan appeared beside him. Then Bert had a terrible moment. The blue blaze of the prince's eye fell upon him. The great finger pointed. A question was asked. Kurt intervened with explanations. So, said the prince, and Bert was disposed of. 
Then the prince addressed the men in short heroic sentences, steadying himself on the hinge with one hand and waving the other in a fine variety of gesture. What he said, Bert could not tell, but he perceived that their demeanor changed, their backs stiffened. They began to punctuate the prince's discourse with cries of approval. At the end, their leader burst into song and all the men with him. Ein Festeburg ist unser Gott, they chanted in deep, strong tones, with an immense moral uplifting. It was glaringly inappropriate in a damaged, half-overturned and sinking airship, which had been disabled and blown out of action after inflicting the cruelest bombardment in the world's history, but it was immensely stirring nevertheless. Bert was deeply moved. He could not sing any of the words of Luther's great hymn, but he opened his mouth and emitted loud, deep, and partially harmonious notes. Far below, this deep chanting struck on the ears of a little camp of Christianized half-breeds who were lumbering. They were breakfasting, but they rushed out cheerfully, quite prepared for the second advent. They stared at the shattered and twisted Vaterland driving before the gale, amazed beyond words. In so many respects, it was like their idea of the second advent. And then again, in so many respects, it wasn't. They stared at its passage, awe-stricken and perplexed beyond their power of words. The hymn ceased. Then, after a long interval, a voice came out of heaven. What is this blaze here, God itself? What? They made no answer. Indeed, they did not understand, though the question repeated itself. And at last, the monster drove away northward over a crest of pine woods and was no more seen. They fell into a hot and long disputation. The hymn ended. The prince's legs dangled up the passage again, and everyone was briskly prepared for heroic exertion and triumphant acts. Small ways, cried Kurt. Come here. Part 5 Then Bert, under Kurt's direction, had his first experience of the work of an air sailor. The immediate task before the captain of the Vaterland was a very simple one. He had to keep afloat. The wind, though it had fallen from its earlier violence, was still blowing strongly enough to render the grounding of so clumsy a mass extremely dangerous, even if it had been desirable for the prince to land in inhabited country and so risk capture. It was necessary to keep the airship up until the wind fell, and then, if possible, to descend in some lonely district of the territory where there would be a chance of repair or rescue by some searching consort. In order to do this, weight had to be dropped, and Kurt was detailed with a dozen men to climb down among the wreckage of the deflated air chambers and cut the stuff clear, portion by portion, as the airship sank. So Bert, armed with a sharp cutlass, found himself clambering about upon netting 4,000 feet up in the air, trying to understand Kurt when he spoke in English and to define him when he used German. It was giddy work, but not nearly so giddy as a rather overnourished reader sitting in a warm room might imagine. Bert found it quite possible to look down and contemplate the wild subarctic landscape below, now devoid of any sign of habitation, a land of rocky cliffs and cascades and broad, swirling, desolate rivers, and of trees and thickets that grew more stunted and scrubby as the day wore on. Here and there on the hills were patches and pockets of snow. And over all this he worked, hacking away at the tough and slippery oiled silk and clinging stoutly to the netting. Presently they cleared and dropped a tangle of bent steel rods and wires from the frame and a big chunk of silk bladder. That was trying. The airship flew up at once as this loose hamper parted. 
It seemed almost as though they were dropping all Canada. The stuff spread out in the air and floated down and hit and twisted up in a nasty fashion on the lip of a gorge. Bert clung like a frozen monkey to his ropes and did not move a muscle for five minutes. But there was something very exhilarating he found in his dangerous work, and above everything else, there was the sense of fellowship. He was no longer an isolated and distrustful stranger among these others. He had now a common object with them. He worked with a friendly rivalry to get through with his share before them, and he developed a great respect and affection for Kurt, which had hitherto been only latent in him. Kurt, with a job to direct, was altogether admirable. He was resourceful, helpful, considerate, swift. He seemed to be everywhere. One forgot his pinkness, his light cheerfulness of manner. Directly one had trouble, he was at hand with sound and confident advice. He was like an elder brother to his men. Altogether, they cleared three considerable chunks of wreckage, and then Bert was glad to clamber up into the cabins again and give place to a second squad. He and his companions were given hot coffee, and indeed, even gloved as they were, the job had been a cold one. They sat drinking it and regarding each other with satisfaction. One man spoke to Bert amiably in German, and Bert nodded and smiled. Through Kurt, Bert, whose ankles were almost frozen, succeeded in getting a pair of top boots from one of the disabled men. In the afternoon, the wind abated greatly, and small, infrequent snowflakes came drifting by. Snow also spread more abundantly below, and the only trees were clumps of pine and spruce in the lower valleys. Kurt went with three men into the still intact gas chambers, let out a certain quantity of gas from them, and prepared a series of ripping panels for the descent. Also, the residue of the bombs and explosives in the magazine were thrown overboard and fell, detonating loudly, in the wilderness below. And about four o'clock in the afternoon, upon a wide and rocky plain within sight of snow-crested cliffs, the Vaterland ripped and grounded. It was necessarily a difficult and violent affair, for the Vaterland had not been planned for the necessities of a balloon. The captain got one panel ripped too soon, and the others not soon enough. She dropped heavily, bounced clumsily, and smashed the hanging gallery into the forepart, mortally injuring von Winterfeld, and then came down in a collapsing heap after dragging for some moments. The forward shield and its machine gun tumbled in upon the things below. Two men were hurt badly. One got a broken leg and one was internally injured, by flying rods and wires, and Bert was pinned for a time under the side. When at last he got clear and could take a view of the situation, the great black eagle that had started so splendidly from Franconia six evenings ago sprawled deflated over the cabins of the airship and the frost-bitten rocks of this desolate place and looked a most unfortunate bird, as though someone had caught it and wrung its neck and cast it aside. Several of the crew of the airship were standing about in silence, contemplating the wreckage and the empty wilderness into which they had fallen. Others were busy under the impromptu tent made by the empty gas chambers. The prince had gone a little way off and was scrutinizing the distant heights through his field glass. They had the appearance of old sea cliffs. Here and there were small clumps of conifers, and in two places tall cascades. The nearer ground was strewn with glaciated boulders and supported nothing but a stunted alpine vegetation of compact, clustering stems and stalkless flowers. No river was visible, but the air was full of the Russian babble of a torrent close at hand. A bleak and biting wind was blowing. 
Ever and again a snowflake drifted past. The springless frozen earth under Bert's feet felt strangely dead and heavy after the buoyant airship. Part 6 So it came about that that great and powerful Prince Karl Albert was for a time thrust out of the stupendous conflict he chiefly had been instrumental in provoking. The chances of battle and the weather conspired to maroon him in Labrador, and there he raged for six long days, while war and wonder swept the world. Nation rose against nation, and air fleet grappled air fleet. Cities blazed and men died in multitudes, but in Labrador one might have dreamt that, except for a little noise of hammering, the world was at peace. There the encampment lay. From a distance the cabins, covered over with the silk of the balloon part, looked like a gypsy's tent on a rather exceptional scale, and all the available hands were busy in building out of the steel of the framework a mast from which the Fatherland's electricians might hang the long conductors of the apparatus for wireless telegraphy that was to link the prince to the world again. There were times when it seemed they would never rig that mast. From the outset, the party suffered hardship. They were not too abundantly provisioned, and they were put on short rations, and for all the thick garments they had, they were but ill-equipped against the piercing wind and inhospitable violence of this wilderness. The first night was spent in darkness and without fires. The engines that had supplied power were smashed and dropped far away to the south, and there was never a match among the company. It had been death to carry matches. All the explosives had been thrown out of the magazine, and it was only towards morning that the bird-faced man whose cabin Bert had taken in the beginning confessed to a brace of dueling pistols and cartridges with which a fire could be started. Afterwards, the lockers of the machine gun were found to contain a supply of unused ammunition. The night was a distressing one and seemed almost interminable. Hardly anyone slept. There were seven wounded men aboard, and von Winterfeld's head had been injured, and he was shivering and in delirium, struggling with his attendant and shouting strange things about the burning of New York. The men crept together in the messroom in a darkling, wrapped in what they could find, and drank cocoa from the fireless heaters and listened to his cries. In the morning, the prince made them a speech about destiny, and the god of his fathers, and the pleasure and glory of giving one's life for his dynasty and a number of similar considerations that might otherwise have been neglected in that bleak wilderness. The men cheered without enthusiasm, and far away a wolf howled. Then they set to work, and for a week they toiled to put up a mast of steel, and hang from it a gridiron of copper wires two hundred feet by twelve. The theme of all that time was work, work continually, straining and toilsome work, and all the rest was grim hardship and evil chances, save for a certain wild splendor in the sunset and sunrise in the torrents and drifting weather, in the wilderness about them. They built and tended a ring of perpetual fires. Gangs roamed for brushwood and met with wolves, and the wounded men and their beds were brought out from the airship cabins and put in shelters about the fires. There old von Winterfeld raved and became quiet and presently died and three of the other wounded sickened for want of good food while their fellows mended. These things happened, as it were, in the wings. The central facts before Bert's consciousness were always firstly the perpetual toil, the holding and lifting, and lugging at heavy and clumsy masses, the tedious filing and winding of wires, 
and secondly, the prince, urgent and threatening whenever a man relaxed. He would stand over them and point over their heads, southward into the empty sky. The world there, he said in German, is waiting for us. Fifty centuries come to their consummation. Bert did not understand the words, but he read the gesture. Several times the prince grew angry, once with a man who was working slowly, once with a man who stole a comrade's ration. The first he scolded and set to a more tedious task. The second he struck in the face and ill-used. He did no work himself. There was a clear space near the fires in which he would walk up and down, sometimes for two hours together, with arms folded, muttering to himself of patience and his destiny. At times these mutterings broke out into rhetoric, into shouts and gestures that would arrest the workers. They would stare at him until they perceived that his blue eyes glared and his waving hand addressed itself always to the southward hills. On Sunday the work ceased for half an hour, and the prince preached on faith and God's friendship for David, and afterwards they all sang, Ein feste Burg ist unser Gott. In an improvised hovel lay von Winterfeld, and all one morning he raved of the greatness of Germany. Blut und Eisen, he shouted, and then, as if in derision, Weltpolitik! Ha! Ha! Then he would explain complicated questions of polity to imaginary hearers, in low, wily tones. The other sick men kept still, listening to him. Bert's distracted attention would be recalled by Kurt. Small ways, take that end, so. Slowly, tediously, the great mast was rigged and hoisted foot by foot into place. The electricians had contrived a catchment pool and a wheel in the torrent close at hand, for the little Mulhausen dynamo with its terminal volute used by the telegraphists was quite adaptable to water driving and on the sixth day in the evening the apparatus was in working order and the prince was calling, weakly indeed, but calling, to his air fleet across the empty spaces of the world. For a time he called unheeded. The effect of that evening was to linger long in Bert's memory. A red fire spluttered and blazed close by the electricians at their work, and red gleams ran up the vertical steel mast and threads of copper wire towards the zenith. The prince sat on a rock close by, with his chin on his hand, waiting. Beyond and to the northward was the cairn that covered von Winterfeld, surmounted by a cross of steel, and from among the tumbled rocks in the distance the eyes of a wolf gleamed redly. On the other hand was the wreckage of the great airship, and the men bivouacked about a second ruddy flare. They were all keeping very still, as if waiting to hear what news might presently be given them. Far away, across many hundreds of miles of desolation, other wireless masts would be clicking and snapping and waking into responsive vibration. Perhaps they were not. Perhaps those throbs upon the ethers wasted themselves upon a regardless world. When the men spoke, they spoke in low tones. Now and then a bird shrieked remotely, and once a wolf howled. All these things were set in the immense cold spaciousness of the wild. End of chapter 7, parts 4, 5, and 6. Recording by Fred DeBerardinus.